Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and go to the book of Colossians chapter 1, please. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to take a little break from Romans 5 through 8 uh, through, the, through the holiday season and prayer week. And uh, it's mainly because Romans 7 is a very complicated passage and uh, probably not the kind of tough sledding we want to do surrounding Christmas, at least that I want to do surrounding Christmas. Uh, so, we'll, Lord, we'll come back to that uh, after the first of the year. I think this is a, a great time of the year for us to think about Christ. It is, uh, I think, in many ways, uh, the, the very nature of even the cultural response to things, I think, uh, helps us see deep in the human heart is a hunger, a quest for joy, for peace, I mean, it becomes uh, terribly uh, sentimentalized, uh, sort of syrupy. But the reality of it is uh, people long for something more than what we see. And some kind of joy, if I could use the older way of happiness, not, not like the sort of passing, uh, fun kind of happy, but a deep, settled happiness uh, that, that you and I were made for something better than what we currently see. We know something is off. And Christmas is a constant reminder of that when folks start to focus on uh, joy, peace, some level of satisfaction that they might find in this world. And unfortunately, it gets wrapped around things that... that uh, even at their best, are too shallow, right? Because they don't ultimately deeply penetrate to the human heart to provide a lasting joy, and, and they're short-lived. They will, they will pass. I mean, the wonderful time of joy with our family can get eclipsed in a moment when something goes wrong, right? We can go from what we, what we sort of wish would be the perfect Christmas moment to, like, all of a sudden it's, Back to the reality. I mean, we, we, we cannot, uh, we cannot find ultimate final joy anywhere outside of Jesus Christ. And that's why, even though it can be sloganish and sort of trite, uh, if we know the Lord, then we really do need to work hard to keep Christmas about Christ and not let Him gets swallowed up in everything else that's happening so that we basically forget uh, the real point of this celebration. That the Son of God took to himself a human nature so that he might accomplish God's eternal plan. We've even sung of it this morning. So I do think it can be a good time for us to think more clearly and carefully about who Jesus is and, and what Christmas signifies, what it means. And, and as I've said before, when we do that, we, we have a number of ways we can look at it biblically, right? And, and uh, over three decades, I've tried to take about all the angles we can, right? You can go from the Old Testament predictions coming to it. You can look at the historical narratives of it. You can look at really the interpretation of it that comes back from the epistles. That, that is as inspired 
Word of God tells us about the significance of what Christ did and who he is. It can be an occasion for us to worship the Lord. And that's what I'd like us to do, Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks heading into into Christmas is think about what Paul tells us about Jesus Christ in particularly in relationship to what we're going to rejoice in, we're going to celebrate over as uh, as we celebrate Christmas. Look at Colossians chapter 1. I'd like to read verses 15 to 20. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 20. He, and that's a reference to Jesus, we know that because in the verses right before it, it talks about the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and then he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Uh, We worked through the book of Colossians 13 years ago or so, and at the heart of Colossians, a part of the tension is Paul's concerned about these believers whom he's never seen, uh, that they are being wooed away from the gospel centered in Jesus Christ to probably a philosophical kind of orientation. Chapter 2, he, he really goes after that pretty hard and, and doesn't want them to be carried away by these vain philosophies. And so he's trying to help them see, the basic theme of it is, that the way they came to Christ is the way they would move forward in Christ. As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, even so walk in Him. Right? The way in is the way forward. Don't turn away from Christ at all. That Christ is the center. And, and part of what he does in approaching that is to go after the false teaching. Right? To, to actually show the folly and weakness of it and warn them against it. But another way in which you can help people to see that that Christ is the center, the way in is the way forward, is by exalting Jesus Christ. Holding him up in his glory so that they will not be attracted to anything else. Because the reality is, if you're seeking something more than Jesus Christ, you're actually seeking something less. Because there is nothing more. He is the center and the greatest. And so Paul wants in these verses, 15 to 20, to exalt Jesus Christ. And and he uses incredible, profound descriptions of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, all of which are intended to help us see that Jesus Christ deserves first place in everything. That's the language. Look at the end of verse 18. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That's a, 
a basically the 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 center around which everything else is is written in these verses. He is the one who will come to have first place in everything, and he ought to have it in our hearts. It ought to be true in our lives, in our church. I think it is a fundamental, ultimate statement about the position that Jesus Christ will have. He will have first place in everything. That's God's intention and purpose eternally, that Jesus Christ will be exalted. Uh, Paul says a very similar thing just a few pages earlier in Philippians chapter 2. Because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, he has been highly exalted and given a name above every name. Right? And it's looking forward to that time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there is a future day of full exaltation for Jesus Christ, which is promised ahead. The, the thing we need to see, I'm hoping I can draw out, is that Christ coming into this world is in fact tied to that having first place in everything. It's, it's he came into the world so that he will come to have first place in everything. That there is a connection between these two. That Christ's coming at what we celebrate of Christmas was a part of God's eternal plan to make the Son the center of everything. The one who's exalted above everything. The one who receives all glory and is given a name above every name. That, that this coming is tied to the final exaltation of Christ. And so we, we don't just look at the birth of Christ in isolation. We see it in connection to what God had planned from before the foundation of the world to bring about in the coming of Jesus Christ. And it, it is his plan to do that. Ephesians 1.10 says that everything will be brought under Christ. And, and even in our text, uh, there's a great emphasis on the universal nature of this. Look at, in verse 18, it says to have first place in everything. But as, you, as we read through the passage, you could see this, this sort of expansive language, universal scope, in verse 16, all things is used twice, for by him all things were created. All things have been created through him. It's twice in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Down in verse 20, it is reconcile all things to himself. And, and along with those all things statements, there is all creation in verse 15, everything in verse 18, and then the listings in verses 16 and 20. In 16, it's in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And down in verse 20, it's whether things on earth or things in heaven. You can't read these verses without hearing this, uh, this basically drumbeat of universal reality. All things, all things, all things, in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, no matter what the title is, all of them, all of them are going to come under Christ 
so that he has first place in everything, that he is exalted, he is lifted up and honored as he deserves to be honored. So why is that? Right, And that's a part of what the text is unpacking for us. Notice at the beginning of verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. And so here's where I want to draw a connection between that, that, that conclusion of Christ having first place and the incarnation. Because it's here in this statement, He is the in, image of the invisible God, that we need to we need to catch what's going on here because this is a statement about Jesus of Nazareth. Right? He is the express image of God's person. He is the image of the invisible God. All right. So so I'm going to make this edge of the pulpit the the birth of Christ, the incarnation, right? To take human flesh. Prior to that, Jesus was a part of the invisible God. Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, immaterial, invisible. Right? Christ was not an image at that point of the invisible God. It's not until he takes human flesh that he becomes the image of the invisible God, the express image of his person. Yes, I believe he did appear as the angel of the Lord through the out, the out the Old Testament, but, but the very nature of an angel is angels do not have bodies, right? They're immaterial spirits. He didn't actually take the 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 form of incarnation and become the image of the invisible God until he became human. Because humans were made in the image and glory of God. He actually became the perfect representation of the image of God, the express image of God's person. Because God is Immortal and invisible, as 1 Timothy 1.17 says, that he has invisible attributes. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, Hebrews 11.27 describes God as him who is unseen. Because God is a spirit, he has no body, and therefore is not visible. So when it talks about him as the invisible God, it's, it's, it's meaning the very nature of God is, as the Gospel of John says, God is spirit. Right? The Father has never been seen and will not be seen. In fact, Jesus, John writes in John chapter 1 that no one has seen God. There's, it's, you, you can't see God. He's invisible, immaterial, without form. The only way we will see God is because Jesus became human. And that's why, even though we sometimes, I think, get, if, we, if, we've, if we've been Christians for a long time, we've been in church for a long time, we can, we can start to just have all kinds of assumptions. But, but when Jesus is standing before his disciples in John 14, and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And remember, Thomas goes, show us the Father, and it satisfies us. 
I mean, Jesus' words to him are pretty stinging. Have I been with you so long and you do not know me yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? What Jesus is saying is, I am the image of the invisible God. I am the one who reveals God to humans. He is the God we will see, and we will worship, and we'll bow before, and he will rule over everything. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the express representation of his nature. That's why the good news, the gospel, is described in 2 Corinthians 4 as the glory of Christ who is the image of God. When we preach Christ, Jesus as Lord, we're saying, this is God. He's the one who is the glory of God. He is the one who is exalted. So, So he will come to have first place in everything because he's the one who reveals God to us. He is the image of the invisible God. He will be the one who rules over all that he has made in that regard. And again, the backdrop of that is the fact that God uh, graciously made humanity to bear his image and likeness, to reflect him, yet we chose to rebel against God and sinned and fell short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ comes so that that might be made new again. We've seen that in Romans 5 and 6. Right, that that the we we turned away from God and because of that came under the curse of sin and became fallen in our human natures. That we can be made new in Christ, and that is designed after the image of Him who made us. That's what Colossians three ten says: We're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who made us. In in the new birth, we have put on the new self, which according to the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So Jesus is the standard for what we will be conformed to, Romans 8.29 says. We'll be conformed to his image, right? because he is exactly the image of the invisible God. This is important. I'm going, birth of Christ. Let's go back to the garden. God made us, placed Adam and Eve in the garden, enjoyed fellowship with them. The Bible talks about God visiting with them, which I would take to be pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son. Fellowship with God. We rebelled against God. We are put out of God's presence, right? We're separated from God. But you know what the unfolding story of redemption is? Is that one day they will be my people and I will be their God. And you know how the way, way out here at Revelation where it ends, it says God comes and he dwells with his people, right? What was enjoyed in the garden will be restored in the new creation. 
God will dwell among us and we'll be his people. We will be with God. And you know who that's going to be? Jesus Christ. Because what's he called? We even sang it this morning. Emmanuel, God with us. We, we sang, I didn't, I, I should have known it. Probably back in my brain I knew it because I'd looked at the order for the service. But, but I mean, the, 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 the text of Heart Herald Angels is, is exactly what we're talking about here. Right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Right? Pleased with man to dwell. Right? As man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. What was happening at the incarnation was that God was making the way for him to dwell in and among his people the one who would reveal God to them perfectly, the perfect revelation of the Son of God. So from creation to curse, God establishing covenants with his people, which promised this, Christ coming and, and fulfilling those promises, and one day coming again to create a new creation where he will dwell among his people. It's because we see in Christ God. He is the true and living God, the image of the invisible God. He reveals him to us and therefore makes him known so that we might know God perfectly. It's a foretaste of the promise that God has made to us that one day he will dwell among us. He is the one who will serve as the mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. Right? God's intent has always been that there will be a ruler over his creation who is human and divine. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the perfect revelation of God. Prophets and priests and kings all were mediators of God's truth to people, but they were flawed. They always came up short. They were not perfect. The sacrificial system pointed to the fellowship that we could have with God, but it could actually never satisfy completely that need. That's why there was no perfection of the conscience of offers in the Old Testament. But when Jesus came, it was the perfect messenger, right? The perfect mediator, the perfect ruler, and the perfect sacrifice. He is the one that could establish the relationship between God and humanity on a ground that cannot be shaken. There's no flaw there. There's no, there's no breach. Jesus alone can do that. And he reveals God to us perfectly. He is the image of the invisible God. Notice in verse 15, he also says there, he is the firstborn of all creation. Uh, 
The description here is, I think, of Jesus as the ruler over creation. He rules over creation in that regard. And that's why he uses that word firstborn. Firstborn is used in verse 15, and it's used in verse 18. The firstborn from the dead. Uh, Now, some have tried to argue that that must mean that Jesus is the first created thing or person, right? So, so, um, you know, my oldest son, David, is my firstborn, and then I've got three other sons. And so, so what people try to say is, well, so Jesus is the first creation, then the rest was created, right? They try to, they try to make that distinction, but that's not actually how the language is used in the, in the Bible. Firstborn actually is a statement of priority or position. All right, let me, we're going to come back here to Colossians 1, but this is, I think, an important text uh, for you to look at. Go all to Psalm 89, please. Psalm 89, because this is, uh, I mean, actually, at some point, I'd encourage you to jot it down alongside of the Colossians 1.15, so when, when uh, you have folks challenge you on this, you can just show them what the Scriptures say about the meaning of firstborn. Psalm 89. This is a psalm about David and God's covenant with David. And then look at verse uh, Psalm 89, verse 27. I, shall, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. All right, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That the, the way this poetry works is the second part of the verse is helping us understand the first part of the verse. I shall make him my firstborn, that is, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's a statement of position, not, not in terms of chronological priority, but in terms of elevation. David, in fact, wasn't even the first king of Israel, certainly not the first kings in the earth, but for God, he's his firstborn. He's the highest of the kings of the earth. He's given that position of exaltation. In fact, the position of firstborn wasn't always necessarily given to the first one born. Think of Jacob and Esau. Right, that, that the birthright, the firstborn, was given this position as one who would be there. In fact, in, in, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, here's what God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And it states in relationship to the nations of the earth. Jesus is described in Romans 8, 29 in this regard, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Right? That, that you and I are not uh, the second, third, fourth child born. Right? It's simply that Jesus has that place of exaltation. He's the one who has the highest rank in terms of all creation. And I think that's the point that Paul's making in Colossians chapter 1. Go back there now. And again, I want to tie this, make sure we're seeing the significance of this in connection to the incarnation. All right. So, so when he says firstborn, he's meaning the highest, the place of preeminence. That's why it says he will come to have first place in everything. 
But notice, notice verse 17. All right, it says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So Christ was existent before creation. So He can't be a part of the creation. In fact, notice verse 16, it says, For by Him all things were created. So the way, uh, the way we understand uh the, 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 the glory of God in relationship to the creation is that they are fundamentally distinct from each other. There's the creator and there's the creation. When it says that he was before all things, it's putting him outside of the creation. When it says, by him or in him, all things were created, it's putting the creation outside of him. So he, he isn't made in the creation. He's the maker. Right? He's not a part of the creation eternally. He's the source of the creation. Right? But by virtue of becoming human, he steps into creation, taking to himself a human nature, and by doing such becomes the pinnacle of that creation. He's the firstborn of it. He's the one who will rule over it. He is given that position or that status. Well, why is this? Because the language that Paul unpacks for us. Notice verse 16. For by or in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So there's three prepositions for us to highlight. For by, or it could be in him, through him, and for him. When we think about the creation, we should think about it this way. It is actually... By him, all things were created. Through him, they all came into existence and actually for him. Its intention was to that. So, So when we think about this, we have to think about the fact that matter is not eternal, but it came into existence at a point in time, which this isn't a sermon to dive into creation versus evolution, but but the basic premise right, that, that, that the Scriptures are clear on, there was a time when nothing existed, and God created it all. Right? He brought everything into existence out of nothing. And, and so before that time, He existed as God then he brought everything into existence. Everything visible, invisible, heaven, earth, that he, in fact, did this. And it also means, when you see that visible, invisible, right, that, that you and I, uh, I mean, we easily can, can sort of look at uh, material things and know they have a shelf life, right? They decay, they, they don't last they came into existence at some point. Uh, we tend to be materialists. Uh, that is, we tend to think the only things in the world are material things. I'm not talking about going after money, but 
but we tend to think what we can see is real and everything else is, is just sort of out of our worldview. Right? Like right now, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 would say that there are angels observing our worship. And my guess is most of us could make it through an awful lot of worship services without ever thinking about angels being present. We have a tendency not to be very spirit-minded, small s, uh, demons, angels, all of that. They're in that, in some sense, probably in the history of the world and even the present world, we're, we're a little bit unique culturally that we've excluded that middle. We concede that there's heaven and God and there's earth. We tend to miss that realm because we, we are materialists. We've been indoctrinated into a materialistic culture. And, and I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not, certainly would not say we should swing over to the animist spiritual side. Right? I mean, lots of places in this world, if you woke up with a cold this morning, they wouldn't think it was caused by a germ. They would think it was caused by an evil spirit. Perhaps an ancestor that wasn't pleased, a, a curse that was placed on you. Right? That, that they, they would be thinking that realm is affecting our realm, and therefore they're living under sort of fear because of that. That's why in this verse, he talks about thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Because the people in Colossae lived in a world like that. We're living in this world, but there are all these powers in the heavenlies that can affect and attack and influence us. And here's what Paul's saying. Jesus made them all. He rules over them all. So that means they're not eternal. Right? They had a point in time where they were created. And they're not sovereign. Christ is over them. Right? And, and a part of the reason I take time is because we ebb and flow in our culture between the kind of uh, ignoring of it and then all of a sudden swinging towards spiritual warfare stuff that, that starts to take off and people begin to get all, you know, all freaked out about it and start to have all kinds of things going on in their ways to try and defend themselves. And you and I have to recognize that Christ is over it all. He is the one who has been appointed by God and he is the one who rules over every element of his creation, visible or invisible. Right? Christ rules. We don't live in fear of spirits that are in rebellion against God because Christ rules over all things. Right? We, we do not bow the knee to them. We don't try to appease them. We don't play games with them. And that's what a lot of superstition stuff is. You know, I, don't, I mean, obviously people don't do it for real, but like that whole toss the, toss the salt over your shoulder when you spill it or, you know, all those kinds of things. Those are all rooted in a worldview where there are spirits that might affect you and you surrender to the superstitions. 
right? People reading horoscopes and finding out all that kind of stuff is a throwback to a world system that thinks we have to live to please the spirits so that we can get by. We don't play that game. Christ rules over everything. We're not, ridden, we're not riddled and captured by superstitions because Christ is the one over whom all things have been, uh, he's been appointed the ruler overall. Notice it says, through him at the end of verse 16. Through him. So he is the, if I could say it this way, the mediating agent in creation. John 1.3 says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Hebrews 1.2 says, through whom, referring to Jesus, he, God, made the world. He is the one who, 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 through whom the triune God made everything. He brought it into existence. And in fact, he holds it together. Look at verse 17. And in him, all things hold together. He's the one who's not only the source, but the sustainer of things. His power is what holds it all together. Notice the last part of verse 16. It says, and for him. The creation actually was made for Christ. The, the eternal plan of God is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things in earth. This is the outworking of his lordship. So, all the way, way back here, step, step just outside of time where there's only God. When he spoke everything into existence, it was for Christ. Now, do you realize that? When he said, let there be light. When he formed it all, it was for Jesus Christ. It was set up entirely for that moment when Christ will have exaltation over all things. And as it moved forward, we come to that pivotal moment that the book of Hebrews would say, once at the end of the ages, or when the fullness of time had come, like Galatians says. God's eternal plan to exalt His Son and have Him be first place in everything reached a a pivot point, an epic. The Son of God became the Son of Man. He took to himself a human nature so that now the invisible God was fully revealed in the Son. And the one who made the creation began the process of taking the rule of it all. He would come to have first place in everything was a part of the unfolding drama of what God was doing to appoint a man to reflect his glory and rule over his creation the way God would be honored in it. It was essential. 
It was essential that, that the Son of God would become human so that we could see fully and perfectly and completely what God was like and how God would rule through that man whom he's appointed. The birth of Christ was just the beginning of the end. It was the turning point of the ages where God had sent his son to take to himself a human nature so that he might begin this process of redemption and reconciliation that will culminate with his reign on this earth. He deserves first place in everything because of that. So when you and I, in a a couple of weeks, celebrate Christmas, I, I hope, and I obviously, you know, we're going, we're going down a little bit to think about this because this is where the scriptures take us, right? But I think it can be so easy for us to sort of skip along the surface of this and not understand the profoundness and, and in fact, how shocking this would be, right? Because here's the thing, you, I mean, we, you and I, are going on, and rightly so, on the report of all these things. Right? But, but think about, think about walking down the street alongside of this man named Jesus. Sitting down at a table with him. Hearing him teach, watching him do what he does. And hear him profoundly proclaim, that he is God's son. He's the Messiah who had been promised. He's the one that all the prophets had foretold. He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I mean, that's a, that's a crazy claim from a mere human. But here's what the scriptures are saying. That one that you sit across the table from, you watch sleeping in the boat. He's the one who actually made everything that you see. He spoke it into existence. He's the one through whom everything was made by whom it was made, and for whom it was made. He is the one who is the very image and representation of God. If you've seen him, you've seen God. That's who Jesus is. That's who was born in that stable, laid in that manger. That's who he was. And that is stunning. That is the kind of thing that either you have to bend the knee before or you walk away rejecting it. You can't be neutral on that. That God became man so that he might redeem the world and rule it is the message of Scripture 
centered in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who is to have first place in everything. And that's what Christmas is about. God has revealed himself perfectly in his son. God has dwelt with and will dwell with his people again. What was lost at the curse will be restored in the new creation. That everything that we see around us was made by him and he is sovereign over it and will be exalted in it. I mean, the world is broken but it will be made new. There is coming a time that in the midst of this brokenness, the ruler of heaven and earth will return and he will make it new. And he will have first place in everything. And when we celebrate Christmas, our hearts and minds are given the comfort that God kept all of his promises and he will keep all of his promises. The same Jesus who came is coming back and he will make it all brand new. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for carrying out your purposes in Jesus Christ for giving us hope in the midst of the darkness, for having us, uh, allowing us to have your word, to, to have not just the record of Christ's coming, but the interpretation of it. Help us to guard our minds and hearts as we celebrate Christmas, not to, not to let uh, the the theme and the storyline be dictated by pure sentimentality, but be anchored in biblical reality. It should fill our hearts with joy. It should create a, a sense of longing for when the Prince of Peace will return. So Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that there is hope in Christ that what's broken can be made new, that our hearts which turned from you can be restored, given a heart of flesh that worships you through Christ, or that your creation declares your glory and he is the one who created it all and rules over it. Help us to keep Christ at the center of our Christmas celebration and worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.